the right of publicity protects someone's right to commercially exploit their name, image, and likeness and persona. This is a company that has taken my name and my image. They're using it commercially to promote a product. They don't have my permission. They're profiting from it. And I'm probably being damaged in terms of... Today, I have Rob Freund, who is an e-commerce and marketing agency attorney. And today, we're going to be talking about all things attorneys, litigation, as well as specific scenarios that you can avoid as an e-com store and as a marketing agency when it comes to running specific campaigns. I'm Nikita from aspectagency.com, and let's get into the podcast. Today on the show, I have Rob Freund. I wanted to pick his brain on everything regarding attorneys, litigation, and everything in between that goes on in the world of e-commerce and advertising. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. I'm excited to chat. Yeah. Uh, I first got introduced to you in one of the Slack groups that we're in together, and then I saw you on Twitter, and I saw the stuff that you put out on there. It's just like you... I'm always interested in like the little nitty-gritty stuff and the logistical stuff, and you are like a godsend when it comes to that because you get really detailed about specific cases or specific use rights for um, celebrity appearances or specific, just the nitty gritty details. So with that said, like, how did you even get into the the e-com or the advertising industry? Because it's such a niche uh, and it's such a niche world here. Yeah, I, I started my career out of law school at a, a big firm called Greenberg Traurig. And what I was doing there, I was there for about six and a half years. And I was in the litigation group and a lot of what we were doing in that office was defending consumer class actions. And in California, especially a lot of those class actions have to do with false advertising or, or misleading and deceptive advertising practices. So that was my exposure to the area of advertising law. And it you can learn very quickly how much trouble businesses and advertisers can get themselves into and and the sorts of claims that plaintiff's lawyers are looking to bring to make problems for brands. So I decided to leave that firm because, well, there are a number of reasons that we could get into about why I made that decision. But ultimately, I decided staying at a large law firm was not what I wanted my career to be. Started my own practice at the beginning of 2019. And what I wanted to focus on was less doing the litigation defense work and more helping brands and entrepreneurs avoid those problems in the first place. And we had been doing some of that at the previous firm, like uh, clients would come to us before they run a new campaign to have us identify what the risks are, understand what the client's risk tolerance is, and if necessary, ad adjust something that they're doing to bring it in line with that risk profile mm -hmm. so that they, they could at least understand what they're getting themselves into. And I, I like doing that work more than litigating. Um, clients are generally happier when they're not embroiled in a lawsuit. Um, you can you can be a little bit more creative in terms of helping the business achieve their goals and help them keep the money they're going to make rather than you know do damage control in many cases, which is what you have to do in litigation. So that's what I've been doing since then, and it's it's the most interesting area of law to me, just inherently like reading about new developments in from the from the business side of marketing and also the legal side is the kind of stuff that I'll just do on the weekends because I'm interested in it, which is 
more than I could say for other areas I was exposed to. So that's sort of been the journey. And um, yeah, through staying in touch with people like the Slack group that you talked about and going to events and conferences and, and becoming, fortunately, I've been able to become friends with a few clients. I'm, I feel like I'm pretty plugged into uh, the world in which my clients operate, which is, I think it's important for your lawyer to understand your business. Certainly a benefit to have that. And um, yeah, it, it, it's nice that I've been able to do that and stay connected. Yeah, it, for me, it was just a breath of fresh air finding everything that you write about and everything that you talk about, because obviously you have old fashioned lawyers who are just, you know, either like family, divorce, trademark lawyers, like you have all the old fashioned lawyers that are like are built up based off of industries that are over decades, uh, if not hundreds of years old. But e-com and advertising is such a new industry that no one really talks about it. Or whenever I did have a client with a problem that that needed some consulting, like like what you provide, I'd be like, I don't have anyone because I don't know anyone that specializes in that field. So pretty much right now, your main source of work is not um, you know being in the court case or filing lawsuits. I don't know the specifics behind that, but it's more so consulting and making sure that the clients are more proactive towards what they are going to be running versus being uh, reactive to what's already going on. Right. Uh, the The majority of my career has been litigating and, and I do less of that now. And it's for those reasons that I mentioned, I enjoy being more proactive about that and, and helping businesses achieve their goals and what their vision for their brand or their business is while hopefully avoiding those landmines that you could inadvertently step on uh, right that's more rewarding to me than the the litigation aspect of it right and to transition into that with the specific content that you put out and again follow him on twitter if you aren't yet because it's very interesting stuff on the litigation side or at least the um understanding the behind the scenes of what's going on with specific brands celebrities influencers etc how do you find these specific cases or how do you find these specific different angles of you know, I think there was one that you put up about Ronaldo the other day. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you utilizing Ronaldo's likeness to promote some sort of brand. Like, how do you find those specific things? And then you obviously write about them. Yeah. So even though I don't do very much litigating on my own anymore, it's really important to stay on top of what's happening in the world of litigation so that, that then you can advise a client about how to avoid or potentially modify one of your practices so that you don't end up in a similar situation. Or if a case is decided in a way that's favorable to a client that's in, um, or that was favorable to a defendant that is in the same position as a client, it's very useful to know uh, if the question arises or if you get into some kind of dispute, hey, here's a court that said what you're doing is okay. You know, the the precedential effect of that can vary, but it's what I'm trying to impress is it's important to stay on top of what's happening in litigation, even if you're not in it that informs the kind of advice that you give. So what I do to stay on top of stuff is um, the simplest thing is just following people in the space on Twitter and seeing what people are coming up with and sort of keeping your finger on the pulse of what is trending and what's popular. I also have uh, legal research platforms that I have alerts set up in for certain keywords that I know are more likely to be interesting cases for me to read. So I have keywords like likeness because i i like to stay on top of publicity rights issues which is the ronaldo ai um issue i was weighing in on 
things like that or things like NFT or meme or words that if they're picked up, I'll know I'm going to want to take a look at whatever that filing is. So they're updated in real time as cases are filed. And I, I spend a fair amount of the day just scanning those to see if there's something that's either relevant for me to update a client about or and or something that would do well on Twitter or be useful to other people. And then Google alerts for the same sort of thing. And I just try to stay on top of the news and and synthesize what I'm reading into content that'll be useful for other people. Right. And you brought up a good point of seeing what's being put out there, uh, you know, synthesizing everything that's being put out on Google, maybe specific news sources and the news sources that you utilize as a lawyer yourself. Has there ever been a case where, you know, something came up uh, across one of your alerts, uh, you read through it and it directly affected a client that was running a specific campaign? And how did you guys handle that? So an example is um, there's a case that I tweeted about that uh, it was the first case that was interpreting a North Carolina law about subscriptions and automatic renewal offers. Mm -hmm. And that's an area, it's one of the areas of the law where we have a federal law that applies across the country, but then we also have this patchwork of state laws that go beyond the federal requirements they're extremely detailed in some cases, and they're not consistent. So if you're going to be running a nationwide subscription program where you're automatically charging somebody at a certain interval unless they cancel, you have to be aware of all these different laws so that you can avoid uh, consumer class action risk or some kind of enforcement action. So this is the first case applying this very um, specific and granular North Carolina law about subscriptions. And um, the court sided with the plaintiff in that case initially saying, yeah, they, the New York Times did not put the specific part of the offer in bold font as required under this New York law. And so the claim can go ahead potentially on a class-wide basis. So you have a situation where there's significant liability over something like uh, how you style a font in a certain <laughs> part of your offer. And I have clients that are running nationwide subscription offers. So I sent alerts to them saying like, we should take a look at this language in this part of your offer. If you if you offer this to residents of North Carolina, which you usually do if you're running something nationwide or that's available online, and we should take a look at that and determine whether we want to bring that offer into compliance if it's not. So that, that was an example just from last week of, okay, this is a truly new development. Court has never weighed in on this before, and this does affect clients that I'm working with. And it would be great for Twitter because surely other people, this would be news to them as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And has there ever been a point where maybe you caught something a little bit too late? And I don't like, this is like obviously worst case scenario. There is actually like a motion that's filed against one of your clients that you had to go through with the actual litigation process. Yeah. I, like I said, I, I refer a lot of litigation out now the times that I have litigated for clients, uh, I can thankfully say there's not been a situation where I gave a client one piece of advice, they accepted that piece of advice, and then they were sued because my I, I interpreted the law wrong or something right. like that. The reality is like if you're in business long enough, someone is going to sue you or try to sue you, whether it's about your advertising or an employment issue or contract or, or something completely bogus. Like litigation is, is a fact of life if you're in business long enough. 
So I have had clients that face, you know, one or a lot of cases over various things and, and I've been pretty successful handling, um, and re- getting those resolved, but you know, you, you can be completely compliant or some, some clients have different risk profiles. They'll say, you know, we understand what the rules are as you've explained them and, and what the law is, but if we want to be a hundred percent compliant with every law to the letter, that's not how we want to do our marketing. And right. I understand that some clients do, some clients will say, look, I'm not going to be able to sleep at night unless I am confident that everything's buttoned up and that's fine, but it, it's a, it's a trade-off. So yeah, I mean, lawsuits happen and hopefully you're in a good position to deal with them. It's case by case really, as you might expect. And yep. it's uh, hopefully you have a, I think what's important is making sure that your litigation team or, or the firm or the attorney you hire to represent you in that litigation has experience with that subject matter in particular. And I'm a big fan of referring work out to specialists for that reason is, you know, if you have something like your general practitioner attorney probably should not be handling false advertising litigation for you if they don't have experience with it. And right. there, there's, even the specialist might charge a premium. It, it's worth it if, if they can say, yeah, I've seen, I've litigated this issue even in this court, you know, five times before. That's who I would feel much more comfortable having represent me than someone who has to sort of get up to speed on it. I think that just, that's a rule that transcends not only litigation, but everything else that you're doing. It's like, for example, I wouldn't go to a general dentist for a root canal when I can go to an orthodontist, for example. Yeah. So the same thing could be said for, for lawyers, especially, and you see this as well, like in the agency space, like we only specialize in email because, you know, we have so many good case studies and cases that go behind us actually handling that channel rather than doing everything, which funny enough, we used to do, we got burnt out and then we switched to just email. Um, and one thing that I'm sure you've been asked before, but I really want to get your take on it here is obviously everything with AI is happening. I don't know how much you know about this or how much you've been keeping up with the AI side of things, but like, how have you been dealing with everything going on in the AI side? And maybe how has that been affecting your clients or your practice? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much hype around it and there are so many people who want to be seen as an authority on the new thing, sort of like it was with NFTs and and the metaverse and Web3. So there's a, a, a lot of noise in there with signal in terms of what people are talking about and figuring out who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't is a bit of a chore. You know, there are people who say AI is going to touch every aspect of doing business and it's going to eliminate entire professions and so forth. With my practice in particular, the way that AI issues have presented themselves is there's a a demand for or an appetite for using AI tools as a cost-saving mechanism for like influencer and endorsement deals. Mm -hmm. The idea that you could recreate someone's voice or create an AI that looks like somebody that maybe you can't afford to actually pay to endorse your brand uh, that's very appealing to a lot of people, and there are a lot of there are a lot of people on the other side rushing to provide that solution or tell people how to do it. And so the the publicity rights issues with using AI, that's the aspect of AI that's come up more frequently in my practice than anything else so far. I'm sure that will change as time goes on, but there's that, and then using AI powered chatbot tools, it's kind of like. It's not that juicy a, a topic, but it, it's it's um, a, a new class action litigation trend 
is going after e-commerce websites that deploy AI-powered chatbots. And the issues have to do with privacy mm. and recording communications and things like that. Um, but yeah, so what? I, those are the two things that I've been paying attention to most because they come up over and over again. And there's not like hypothetical risk. It, there's put pretty clear risk today in engaging in those practices. I remember you wrote something up about I think some company using Selena Gomez's likeness. And I know she's sued over and over before because of people utilizing her likeness without getting without paying her or going through her management. So is that what you're talking about when you're talking yeah. like using someone's likeness? Yeah. So there was there are a couple of things. There was a a TikTok ad that went viral and then was pretty much immediately taken down where somebody had made basically a deep fake of Joe Rogan and Andrew Huberman mm -hmm. talking about their nootropic product. Yes. Like Rogan has his own supplement line. He's not going to be endorsing anyone else's. To people that are online a lot, like you and I, is pretty obviously a deep fake, but not everybody is going to understand that that's not Joe Rogan talking about, you know, this other thing. And it, it that's as clear cut a publicity rights violation as, as you could imagine. You're, you're taking a celebrity and making it look like you're using his name and image and likeness commercially without their permission to promote a product. Like it, it's a new technology, but it's not a new legal concept. And I think that's where a lot of mistakes are made is assuming that, oh, we have this new thing. There's not like the federal AI law. So that must mean it's not regulated. So for a while we can kind of, you know, move fast and break things. And, and then when they tell us we can't do it, we'll change our ways. But the thing about advertising law, like historically, we we constantly have marketers coming up with new ways of doing things, and we're always applying existing law to those situations. Sometimes you kind of have to stretch it and get creative, and the courts will wrestle with how to apply old laws to new scenarios. But this publicity rights one is not complicated, and it's a mistake to think that it's any sort of a gray area. If you're thinking to yourself, like, the benefit here is that people will associate my product with this celebrity, whether it's actually their voice or synthesized or a deep fake or whatever, the, the same issue is there very clearly. Right. And can you walk me through that specific scenario? Let's say, for example... I was the guy that was running those Joe Rogan ads. How would you go about this violation? Let's say if you were, I don't know, maybe on Joe Rogan's retainer, for example, yeah. or like walk me through the steps of that situation. And like, I guess what would be the ramifications if I were to keep running those ads? Sure. If I represented Joe in that situation and Joe said, I want to sue this guy, I'm, I don't just want to send him a demand letter or a cease and desist. In fact, forget that. Let's just go right to court. So usually it's a cease and desist letter that's first sent. That's common, but it's not, it's the reason I couched it that way is some people will assume, oh, well, if I get a cease and desist, I'll just stop. But right. there's no like legal requirement that you send a cease and desist before you file a lawsuit. Sometimes that doesn't happen. And the way you find out about a dispute is you're served with a lawsuit. Then you have to appear in court or have someone appear for you. So in that situation, the most immediate claim if, if this were re real life and Joe was retaining me, I would spend some time thinking about what other potential claims are available because you want to assert mm -hmm. all of them that might be there or else you lose the right to bring them later. But in just ter in terms of just the publicity rights issue we're talking about, the right of publicity protects someone's right to commercially exploit their name, image, and likeness, and persona. 
this is a company that has taken my my name and my image. They're using it commercially to promote a product. They don't have my permission. They're profiting from it. And I'm probably being damaged in terms of, you know, I can say I'm losing sales of my own product if I can eventually prove that. Um, I'm missing out on the type of licensing fee I would charge if I were to actually endorse a brand like this, things like that. And so I can't remember if Joe's a California resident or if he's in Texas, he's in Texas now. now. If he were in California, I'm not familiar with uh, how Texas's publicity rights statute works, assuming it's similar to California's. Well, he shouldn't make that ass- assumption, but if Let's just say he's in California. Yeah, I'm licensed in California. Somebody similar comes to me. In California, you don't have to be a celebrity to bring a case like this. The And you don't necessarily have to prove that you're damaged. There's a, a minimum amount of statutory damages that you're entitled to, plus attorney's fees. And the reason why these claims are so difficult or thorny to defend against and so appealing for plaintiffs to bring that like it, it changes the way the fees work. The je- the starting point, the default is that in a lawsuit in the U.S., each side pays their own way, win or lose. Some laws write into the law that whoever wins gets uh, their attorneys. The other side has to pay for their lawyers. So this supplement company, if Joe wins on this case, like in addition to whatever the damages for the violation are. They're going to have to pay their own lawyers to defend it. And then they're going to have to pay for Joe's lawyers at the end of this. And that's important because like the longer you def- you try to fight a case like that, the more expensive it's going to be when you lose. So you have a very strong incentive to settle it as early as possible, assuming that that's on the table. So I'd write up a complaint that alleges the violation of California's publicity rights statute. I'd consider what other claims might be available if there's false advertising or um, violation of the unfair competition law or something like that, put together a complaint, file it and serve it, and then try to get as much money as I can out of that person. And that's how that would progress. Yeah. That's like just you walking through that, walking step by step through that. It's just insane to me to think about how much is actually involved, not only through going through the litigation process, but also I didn't realize that some states require you to pay the, uh, the attorney fees it varies law by law. So it's not like any case in California. It's California's publicity rights law specifically is one of those one of those laws that changes the dynamic. And there, there are other ones like in the employment context. And, and some say it's like up to the judge, discretionary, like they, you may be awarded your attorney's fees, but this is one that's mandatory. Whoever wins gets their attorney's fees back. And so when you see claims like that, it's much more appealing for plaintiff's lawyers to pursue. Because if you had like, let's say a $20,000 breach of contract case, it's going to be hard for a lawyer to want to bring that case. The contingency amount's not going to be high enough for that to make sense. And, you know, any lawsuit that goes on for more than a couple of months, you're probably going to end up paying more than 20 grand in, in legal fees anyway. But if you have that hook of, oh, there's, there's mandatory attorney's fees if you win, it's much more appealing to get representation for you. And that's why they write that in the law in the first place. That makes sense. Yeah, because then at that point, it doesn't matter which how big the case is because the lawyer is going to get paid regardless. Right. Now, in that specific scenario, since you just mentioned that you are licensed in California, do you then only work with California-based brands or do you still consult nationwide? Like, How does that work 
Like how do clients actually work with you in that scenario? I do work with clients across the country and sometimes internationally. The issue is I I don't give specific legal advice to state issues that aren't California. Compliance with FTC regulations, that's a nationwide issue. They're a federal agency. I can give advice about that. If somebody wants to set up a business in Texas or something, I'm not the guy for that. And it, it, you really want somebody who is in Texas, understands the corporation's code and things like that to guide you through that process. If I have a client that's doing a lot of business in California, but they have you know maybe one limited issue in Texas, and I feel that I can fulfill my duty to my client to competently investigate what Texas says about that in that specific situation, you know, there's not an issue with that. Or if they're based in a different state and they want help with laws that apply in California or some nationwide issue, there's no issue with me helping on that. But, you know, if, if you were a client that's based in Texas and you're like, I really need to get advice about how Texas handles this issue, or if there were any litigation there, then I'd need to make a referral to a Texas attorney. Nice. Nice. Uh, if you're federal, you can cover everything for the most part. But if it's specifically statewide, you're only going to be working in California. Pretty much. I, I The focus is on California if there are issues that come up that have to do with, that are within my wheelhouse, but are limited to issues in other states. I can still help out with that. But Most of my clients are in California. A few are based elsewhere, but have issues about running national campaigns generally and things of that nature that I'm comfortable and permitted to help with. And when you did leave that big law firm and you started to transition into your own firm or just to be your own practitioner, are you currently still working as like a solo practitioner doing the consulting yourself or do you have your uh, like associates that work under your own practice? Like how does that work? And how does a client work with you in that regard? Yeah, the vast majority of the work is handled by me personally, especially when it comes to the advertising issues and the compliance work that we've been talking about. Right. I have other attorneys that I trust who help with areas of the practice that aren't that aren't really my specialty. So if a client has a trademark application, uh, my colleague helps with that or setting up a new business in California or um, bringing on investors and things of that nature that is in his wheelhouse and and together we can cover a lot more ground than that in rare cases if it's if there's like a really big project that I'm working on and part of the work product doesn't really need like the high level analysis it's more either research or, or putting together some deliverable uh, I will sometimes bring in attorneys to assist with that but I think that the a lot of the value is that when you hire me, I'm the one that's going to be doing most of the work and, and you, you know who you're working with. So it's that's how it's set up now. I think it'll probably stay that way for the foreseeable future, but I enjoy it. It helps me build a better relationship with a client. They feel like they understand who's representing them and doing the work. And so far it works out pretty well. And it's nice to have sort of a, a bench of colleagues who can help deliver other parts of um, legal services that maybe aren't my forte that I really shouldn't be spending on all my time on. And I think that's usually the best way to go about it whenever you are a specific specialist in a specific area. Uh, for Like for us, for example, even though I'm not necessarily doing all of the fulfillment, I do have a t- like team members that do that for me. But in our own specialty of email, we do have partners in like advertising or influencer or UGC creation. And we've mm-hmm. tended to see that that works really well with the clients that we manage because we have a roster of specialists that if they need help with specific 
um, like if they need help with Google ads or TikTok ads, we have the right team for them to go to rather than them trying to go and find someone else on their own. Uh, and again, those partnerships work out really well because you know you trust these people and that trust builds up even more when you work as like a tag team on a client rather than you know having some Joe Schmo work on their ads or in your case, having some Joe Schmo work on the litigation side or the, the trademark and copyright side. Yeah. I mean, there's, I, I think that, you know, if it were me and I are hiring an attorney and I, the, I'm initially interested because I see somebody's content or they've demonstrated some expertise or knowledge in a certain area, I would prefer to know that that's the person that's doing the bulk of the work on it and not be surprised by a bill that lists some attorney I've never heard of, you know? <laughs> So it, it's right. nice that I'm set up to be able to do that and still meet all the client needs and have that sort of hands-on engagement. Right. And when you do work with clients, is there a specific number of clients that you're like max out at, or is there a specific capacity that you hit? And when you do bring on new clients, is there anything that you specifically look for? So for example, if someone was listening and they want to work with you, what would be like those qualifications in order to be able to work with you? Yeah. So the the first part is there's not really like a number or some sort of capacity threshold. If I'm starting to get overwhelmed and there's more than I can take on there, I, I have colleagues that can help me out who I trust, who also do what I do mm-hmm. and, and can, can help deliver what's promised, you know, at, at the same level of excellence. And so that I, I'm able to sort of scale up and down as needed. But generally speaking, I'm, I'm not taking on, I have a good sense of what the limits are. And I, I never want to get into a situation where I'm promising something I can't deliver on. Yeah. There, it, it's sort of like a, it's a feel thing. Like I know like, all right, I, I need to either tone it down, not tone it down, but I'm nearing the capacity and I should think about if I take on more clients, how I have it set up so that everything can be delivered as at the same level that people expect. In terms of what I look for in working with clients, most of my clients are direct to consumer brands and marketing agencies. And it, oftentimes the initial connection will be a request to review something like a website or a sales funnel or some piece of content to look out for the sorts of risks that I talk about on Twitter and Instagram and stuff like that. And they just sort of want to get a health check and see, you know, what are we not thinking about? What are the potential risks here? Or, you know, sounds like we might need a terms of service or terms and conditions or a contract for this. Either we have one, can you take a look at it? Or we need one, can you write it? That's often the first point of contact. And then from there, there's other issues that we can help with. Like it's time to set up a new business. It's time to bring on investors or we want to start working with influencers. We need agreements for that. We're bringing Mm -hmm. on this vendor. Can you look at this contract they presented us with? And that's a lot of what I what I do in addition to the sort of compliance and risk assessment stuff is doing the actual drafting because that's a huge part of risk mitigation or prevention is making sure your contracts actually protect you and that you're not giving up more than you might have expected to or that's not fair for a certain situation. And then like the decision of whether to take a client on or not is is really just it's more like there are things that might disqualify. Mm-hmm. Um if you're based internationally, I have a few clients that are that are outside the U.S., but the issues I'm addressing are about, hey, we want to run a campaign in the U.S. Can you help us with that? Right. But I do get a lot of inquiries from people who are based in 
I got something from someone in uh, in China recently, and it's like whatever you're advertising in China, I, I'm not the guy to help you comply with that because it was a like intra China issue, and it's 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 outside my wheelhouse and not something that I can do. Um, but sometimes I, I'm sure it's the same with you is you'll get on the phone with somebody or you can just tell from an email, like the way it's right. written, like, this is not going to be somebody that I want to work with. There's going to be issues. And that's more of like a feel thing that you just, you'd sort of develop your gut over the years of taking on clients and of things, if you just really don't work well together or issues arise, you can get a sense of, you can detect that earlier. And sometimes I'll just get, you know, if if the if in my gut I think this is not a client that I want to work with, then fortunately and I, I'm in a position now where I don't have to take on everything and I can I can be selective. So yeah, that's sort of my process. It's like, is this an issue that I can't help with? And is is there anything that makes me not want to work with this client, basically? Yeah. Once you get out of that stage of like needing to survive, that's the best part because then you can actually be selective with the brands or the clients that you work with. Cause then at that point, you're not, you don't need to have the next buck in order to, you know, pay. Yeah. Back. Uh, one of the things that I, I heard early on, but it, it, I think it's one of those things that you kind of have to learn through experience is that sometimes saying no is the most profitable thing you can do in terms of the amount of time and frustration that you're saving yourself. But it, it is difficult to do anytime you start a new venture to turn down money, but it's true. Sometimes, you know, if it just doesn't feel right, saying, listening to your gut and saying no can be a very profitable thing to do long term. Absolutely. And I wanted to close this podcast off with one last question of let's say there is a brand, uh, but they aren't maybe, they may not necessarily be able to afford you or work with you, or maybe they're not in a position to afford a lawyer or have an attorney look over something. What would you recommend them to do if they're in that position? Or how would you recommend them to go about, whether it's like a new campaign or um, a specific scenario that they might have? I think that understanding at least the risk of what you're doing is a critical business function. And so I try to push back on the belief that you know I, I can't afford to, to make sure I get this right. Because if that's the case, you probably can't afford to get it wrong. And so at least trying to identify an attorney who maybe is, maybe they're, maybe they're not in LA. Maybe there's somebody who has fees that are more in line with what makes sense for the amount of money that you have currently, but at least having some kind of consultation with an attorney who, even if it's something as simple as, okay, we can't look at everything you're doing, but here's what I would prioritize and have someone at least take a do like a checkup on what your business is doing and try to tackle the one or two most important tasks as much, as best as you can and and find an attorney that might be willing to do an alternative fee structure. Some firms are willing to, instead of just an hourly rate, if you're a startup, they'll do some sort of equity deal or deferred fees and say, you know, once you make a certain amount of money, we, we can get paid at that point or something like that. But I would really recommend against assuming that legal counsel is outside your budget for everything 
and waiting until you feel like, okay, now that we have X amount of money, we should get help. It, it, it really pays off to be proactive and, and avoid problems. It's like with your health, you know, it, it's to your advantage to get checkups and, and exercise. And that's a lot cheaper than fixing a problem down the road. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good note to close off on. Um, thank you again for coming on, Rob. I learned a ton and I, I'm definitely positive that the audience has learned a lot as well. So where is the best place to find you, uh, interact with you as well as, you know, start a conversation to work together? Yeah. These days I'm more active on Twitter than Instagram, but they're, they're still pretty even. I'm at Robert Freund Law on both of those. I try to get to all my DMs and also, um, Find me on my website, robertfroynlaw.com. Um, you can book a consultation through there, and my my email is on there too. So any of those methods works to get in touch with me. Fantastic. Thanks again, Rob, and I'll see you on the next one. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us on the Scaling E-Commerce Podcast. If you enjoyed it or learned something new, remember to like, subscribe, and leave a review. It really helps out with the algorithm. If you want email marketing tip delivered straight to your inbox on a weekly basis from yours truly, then check out the link below or in the show notes to subscribe and join my newsletter. If you're a D2C brand with at least 10,000 email subscribers and interested in starting a conversation to work together, then go to aspectagency.com and we'd love to chat with you. And if you want to stay up to date with anything email and SMS, just follow me on Twitter at Nikita Vakrushev or check the show notes for the link. With that said, I'm Nikita and I'll see you in the next one.